Let's go ahead and get started. Um, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11 tonight, so if you want to turn there. And um, what I am going to have you do, once you, once you find Daniel 11, I'm going to actually have you just kind of like mark that in your Bible and then close your Bibles while we read this text. Um, and that's primarily because we are going to study the text, but I don't want you to get lost in all the, the details and stuff. So I just want you to hear the text read, okay? I'm not going to be reading all of Daniel 11, just through verse uh, 35. And I'll uh, be reading, it'll probably be like two or three minutes of reading before we can get into the exposition. So I just want you to hear it. Um, Daniel chapter 11, uh, I'll begin in verse 1. Yeah. So hear the word of the Lord. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong, through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken and divided into the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom will be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south will be strong, but one of his princes will be stronger than he and will rule, and his authority will be great as an authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants who fathered her, and, she, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one will arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come to the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons will wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart will be exalted and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come with one great army and abundant supplies. In those times many will rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift up themselves in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up the siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, nor even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of woman to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fail. 
and he shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither for anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person who will destroy majesty that has not been given. He shall come in without, without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from this time, an alliance will be made with him. He shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he will come into the richest parts of the province. He will do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south will wage war with an exceedingly great mighty army, but he will not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food will break him. His army will be swept away and many will fall down and be slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts will be bent on doing evil. They will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his own land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will work his will and return to his own land. At that time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for the ships of Kitten will come against him, and he will be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He will turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They will set up an abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people will make many understand, though for some days they will stumble towards sword and flame by captivity and by plunder. And when they stumble, they will receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. So that is Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 35. It is a long section of scripture. You can feel free if you want to look now in your text as well. Now that you've heard the word read, uh, we'll talk about what all that means. It's a long section of text. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, the whole of Daniel chapter 11 is a history lesson. The whole thing is one giant review, or rather prediction, of history. So how this works is, from Daniel's perspective, he's talking about things that will come to pass. And from our perspective, these are things which have come to pass. This is similar to Isaiah predicts the birth of, the, of Jesus Christ by a virgin. And then when we look back and we see the prophecy of Isaiah, we see Isaiah predicted it, but we look back at its completion. Similarly here in Daniel 11, you have Daniel talking about things that will come to pass in his future, but things which are already in our past. Now, as I was reading the text, uh, you might have felt like there's a lot of moving pieces. This text covers roughly 400 years of human history from the time of uh, Daniel up until the, uh, the man Antiochus Epiphanes, who we have already talked about in the past. But we're not going to try to map verse one or verse two to a certain date or time or event in history. And it's not because you can't do that. It's just because there's so many connections, we would literally get lost in all of them. This text in Daniel 11 is the primary reason why critical scholars of Daniel say Daniel has to have been written after 
the events prescribed. And Daniel isn't a real historical person because Daniel could not possibly have written when he wrote and talk about all the things he talks about and have both of those things be true. The way they rationalize it is like this. All of these events are so detailed, so accurate, so tightly wound to the history, it could only have been written by someone who was carefully well-researched about things that had transpired and simply wrote them down. That's how well-organized this text is. So the critical scholars conclude, well, Daniel is a forgery. It must have been written by someone who wrote after the time of Daniel because no one could with this kind of accuracy predict all of the things that took place. Now, that is an example of a, a bias that critical scholars have towards the text because they assume the impossibility of what's called predictive prophecy or the supernatural. They assume God can't intervene and show things to his people in history that have not yet taken place. So the historical reliability of Daniel 11 is astounding. It's astounding. I'll, I'll draw a couple of threads, but really, if you, if you want to get into all of it, I'd be happy to sit down with you and with a worksheet and with a whiteboard and with probably two or three hours clear, map all of this history out. I'm assuming that most of you aren't well-versed in Near Eastern history pre one, uh, the pre-first century AD, which is why we're not going to try to dive into all that history because uh, we'd get lost in it. So uh, a couple of things uh, as we're diving into this text to, to follow the overall themes. Uh, one is a quote from a guy uh, who comments on the text and he says this. Uh, he's talking about Daniel chapter 11. He says, this chapter might be treated in Bible classes or in seminary lectures, but we do not see how it could be used for sermons or profitable in the church. This man is talking about the uh, authority of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, but he concludes Daniel chapter 11 uh, is a chapter best left to seminaries because of how textually detailed it is. Uh, and I would contend, and I think, you know, by, by virtue of what we're doing right now, you can probably tell I, I disagree with that. I think it can be used uh, within the church. Um, but in order to do that, we have to approach it from a, uh, a big picture, big view level. So the big view that I want you to hold in Daniel chapter 11 is the history that unfolds is all bound within what the Bible already tells us about human history. Namely, if you were to look at Psalm chapter 2, the why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at their attempts to thwart his dominion. And in Daniel chapter 11, that's basically the entire plot line drawn out for much longer uh, in terms of history, because what you have in Daniel chapter 11 is every attempt from the time of Daniel till the time of the advent of Christ, uh, of kingdoms in the world trying to conquer the world by power, brute force, military might, and strategy. Every single one of those kingdoms is discussed in this text. For example, we've seen a bunch of these, so we're just going to look at a handful of them. If you look at verse 2, uh, you'll, you'll hear uh, similar language. Uh, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. So right now it's under Cyrus. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel says three more kings will arise, and after those kings, a fourth, which will be far richer than all of them. That would be Xerxes, who comes in power uh, in, as the final king of the Persian Empire. And if, if you've ever seen the movie 300 or you know Greek history, Xerxes leads the army of the Persians against the Greeks and ultimately loses to the Greeks and therefore the Persian Empire falls from power. So that this king, this fourth king, is far richer than all of them. And when he becomes strong through his riches, he will stir up against all the kingdoms of Greece. Verse 3, then a mighty king will arise, that's Alexander the Great, the king of Greece, who shall rule with a great dominion and do as he wills. 
And listen to this, verse 4. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. Alexander the Great conquers almost the entire world by the time he's 20. He dies suddenly, and his kingdom will be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. None of Alexander's sons inherit his kingdom. Actually, they're all assassinated. And it's not according to the authority with which he ruled. What happens is his kingdoms are divided up by those generals who ruled at his time. So it's divided by his four generals uh, into the various empires. And those four generals proceed to go to war against each other. And the rest of the text from verse 5 through the end of verse 20 details the war between two of those four generals, namely the king of the north and the king of the south, and their multiple year-long skirmish that they have against each other, lasting generations. And really, if you're reading King of the South, you can insert Egypt. It's the Egyptian empire, the empire of Potlami, or the King of the South. And when you see King of the North, that's the Syrian empire. So the Greek kingdom is divided, King of the North, King of the South. There's other two kings, but they kind of fade from world power. And what's happening is Israel is situated right between the King of the North and the King of the South. So when the King of the North and the King of the South fight, uh, Israel's caught in the middle. It's caught in the war. So as Syria comes down and fights Egypt, They come by and they sack a couple of Israelite cities. And when Egypt goes up against Syria, they come and they sack a couple of Israelite cities. And Israel is kind of torn between these two rival factions. So what happens? Well, if you read the text, you can read all the details of the drama. There's uh, an attempted marriage for peace. There's an attempted contracted uh, espionage between the two. One goes against the other and fights and wins. And then he comes again and he loses. And they both amass multiple armies. And this spans generations and generations and generations. What's the point? The point is the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain. They are uh, always conspiring against God and against the Lord and against his anointed, but they never actually win anything because God is the one who is sovereign. And then what you see uh, in the text with this Psalm 2 worldview is that ultimately their, their, uh, fighting and and battles and everything, it it amounts to nothing because in the end, what happens? In the end, both the king of the north and the king of the south, they don't gain anything really by their multiple multiple battles. Instead, what happens is a king from the north ultimately defeats the king of the south, but he's not actually the true king of the north. He's a, a false plant, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he comes in verse 20 uh, and uh, it says, then, then shall arise in his place, this is in place of the king of the north, one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger or in battle. And in his place, sorry, verse 21 is Antiochus Epiphanes, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, usurps the throne away from the one who ruled uh, over him. And he proceeds to essentially dominate the Near East for the rest of his lifetime. Now, I'm not going to dive deep into Antiochus Epiphanes because... Uh, we've already covered him in detail in chapter 8. I read a whole section out of 1 Maccabees at that time, detailing his war against the people of God. But you'll notice this is the exact same figure from chapter 8. It's the little horn. And you'll notice because uh, in verse 28, detailing this person and his exploits, you'll see that uh, he is the one who is set against the Holy Covenant. He is set against the people of God. And he, he uh, wars against God's people. He battles against them. He has this contempt against the children of Israel. And so Daniel's being told about all this in a vision. And this, this text really is, let's say, detailing the, the total uh, rebellion of the world against God and namely the effect that that has on the people of God. And with the last couple of verses in this text, at least in this historical overview of the nation's rebelling against God, 
You notice what effect does that have on the people of God? If you look at verse uh, 34 uh, in the text, it's uh, in those last two verses that we read. When they stumble, it's the people of God, when they stumble, there will be a little help and many will join themselves to them with flattery. So many people will look at the people of God with sympathy, will try to uh, deal with them kindly, but really it's just flattery. It's false, false niceness. Verse 35, and some of the wise, which would be some of the leaders in Israel, will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For so it awaits at the appointed time, or still it awaits the appointed time. So you see, the people of God are caught in the middle, and ultimately Antiochus Epiphanes triumphs over them, battles against them, and he, uh, he, he persecutes the people of God. What happens uh, with him is he goes to the temple, he sacks the temple, he sets up human sacrifice in the temple of God, he kills all the priests, he forbids circumcision, he only allows the eating of unclean food. He's, he's a total, uh, total uh, menace to the people of God. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to put you back down here, buddy. There you go. Um, so you have uh, this, this cosmic rebellion ultimately typified in this one man, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and he, he foreshadows uh, the man who we'll read about next week in uh, verse 36 and following, who is the ultimate culmination of these antithetical oppositions to the people of God. We've already seen this prophecy again once before in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. Both chapters cover almost the exact same timeline as, as these verses do. So what, what can we take away from this? So if we're looking at this from the worldview of Psalm 2, the, the nations raging against God and the Lord having his ultimate victory over them, well, what we haven't read in the text yet, but what's kind of subtle in the text, is that God can tell Daniel these things because these things are not outside of God's control. So imagine you have a God who knows all things, knows all possible outcomes within human freedom. Um, he wouldn't be able to tell you the future because he would only know what's possible in the future, not what actually happens in the future. Well, what if you have a God who not only knows the future, but has superintended it to be so? A God who not only uh, observes reality, but who also affects reality by his own providence and who governs all things in the course of his might. Well, this God would be able to come down and rather easily tell Daniel all that is going to happen with intricate detail. And thus we have the problem of Daniel 11, which kind of thwarts the whole book of Daniel, which is that people conclude it could only have been written after what is, what is going on. It, it, it would be like me telling you all the details of World War II, writing with great detail and great exactness about Hitler, his rise to power, all the... All the uh, the, the fights and skirmishes, which elections he wins, which battles he wins, what are his oppositions, who are his allies. If I wrote with great detail all those things, well, you wouldn't be too impressed because that just requires access to knowledge and access to good resources. But what if I told you all those things uh, during the time of World War I and then they all came true as it unfolds? Well, that would cause great perplexity. And I can't do that kind of thing because I'm not a prophet of God. Uh, but Daniel can because he, he is a prophet of God. He's, he's been ordained by God to, to see these visions. And we saw last week in the introduction how, how painful that is to his person. It's, it's almost uh, crushing to him. And then this last, uh, this last uh, piece of, uh, of Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, this whole raging culminates with one man who is, let's say, a typified person who goes against the people of God. Um, and we don't know about him very much because we're not Jewish, so we, we don't really think about Antiochus Epiphanes very much. Um, but if you read about him, you do yourself a favor and just look up his historical, uh, let's say, ex exploits. Uh, he is, 
he is really a, a pre-Hitler kind of person against the people of God. He, he goes against them, and he doesn't just go against them as a military conquest. He really goes with a vengeance to destroy and obliterate their religion. And this man is a tyrant, but what the text of Daniel tells us is he's not, he's not doing whatever he wants. I want you to look uh, at verse 24, for example, and see that when this man goes, uh, what happens? Uh, I'm going to read, uh, it's the very last sentence of verse 24. It says, he shall devise plants against strongholds, but only for a time. Only for a time. Why can God tell Daniel, don't worry, it's only going to be for a time? Because God knows God's in it. God's superintending these things as they're happening. Or look with me at verse 27, which in the same way limits the power of this man and says, and as for the two kings, their heart will be bent on doing evil. They will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is to be at the appointed time. So, so God is, in all, the, in all the plotting of the kings, well, God's the one who's, who's over the timeline. God's the one who's able to set forth the boundaries of what they're able to do. So what did the people of God conclude? Well, Daniel chapter 11, remember, comes on the heels of, well, Daniel's chapters 1 through 10. And Daniel chapters 1 through 10 has made a really strong case for God's providence being benevolent towards his people. Remember, uh, the people of Israel are sacked by Nebuchadnezzar, but it was God who gave them over into his hand. Don't fear, people of God, this is what's happening according to God's plan. So how does that work out for faithful Israelites? Well, God preserves them, protects them, guides them, governs them, directs them in such a way in which they outlast the empire that overthrew them. And at the end of that empire, at the end of the Babylonian empire, they're actually released back into Jerusalem. So the whole book of Daniel so far is a, is a case to trust God's providence, even if it seems like in the moment things aren't going to work out how you think they're going to work out. It looks very bad for the people of God. And then on the heels of that, Daniel 11 turns and says, and it's going to be like that for the next several hundred years. But don't worry, because there's an appointed time. It's a set season. It's a set period. And this person isn't doing whatever they want. They're doing whatever God has permitted them to do and no more. This is the same theology the book of Job sets for us in chapters 1 and 2. Job is uh, vexed, assaulted, he's suffering. But the book of Job tells us that all of what happens to Job, even though Job doesn't understand what's going on or why it's happening, he's not given privy into those things. What we're told is that Job is not given wholly over to the accuser. He's not given wholly over to be done with whatever. God has told the accuser, you can only do this much and no more to Job. And why does God do that? Because God is all wise and all knowing and good in such a way that is even beyond our ability to understand to the point where Job just shuts his mouth and says, I cannot take a case against God after, after presenting his case before God. So every tyrant, every tyrant in human history has had a leash on them. They've all had this restraint put upon them. Even Hitler at the height of his empire was leashed by God. Even uh, uh, if you want to look at the Russian empire today or you want to look at um, uh, the Chinese empire and, and as they go against the people of God, they're all on a leash. They don't have this unrestrained domineering control like they pretend to. They're on a leash. So every tyrant in history that we've seen has had a leash. The case of Daniel makes that clear. Nebuchadnezzar was on a, on a very strict leash. Uh, and that, that's true throughout human history, even till today. Every single person who you look warring against God, plotting against the people of God, uh, is merely doing what they're permitted to do and no more. And God can end that whenever he well pleases. And now, uh, 
that, that is, let's say, up against the biblical worldview of Psalm 2, the, the Lord's anointed, who actually does do whatever he pleases. So you have the king, Christ, who can do whatever he wants, and the, the nations which rage against Christ, which the conclusion of Psalm 2 is, therefore, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Because the son is not someone you want to go against with. He's all-powerful, all in control, and he's actually sovereign, not any of these other kings. Christ is over all the earth, and there's not a single plot of land in this world that's not his. He's sovereign over all of it. So what do the people of God then conclude, let's say, given all these realities? Well, we can conclude that if, if there's one king who's sovereign, no matter what it looks like on the ground, uh, well, we're going to obey the sovereign king. Okay? If you know that this is all just a, uh, in some ways, a fiction of human rebellion and not the reality of what's going to be true in eternity, well, it kind of gives you uh, a strength to rebel appropriately. Now, the book of Daniel actually has already done this, so I would like to show you how it's already done this before. If you want to look with me at Daniel chapter 3, this is in the narrative section, a wonderful, wonderful story, but it tells us about how, how do the people of God rebel against kings who have their uh, heart set against God? And one of the things the author does in Daniel chapter 3 is he tells us this whole thing is a fabrication. As bad as it looks for Daniel, as bad as all this looks for uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, the whole thing is actually a farce. So he, he tells us a bunch of times, I think I pointed this out when we were in chapter 3. If you look at verse 1, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Or if you look again at the end of verse 2, uh, this is the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar made it. It's not a real god. Or if you look at uh, the end of verse 4, and this is the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Or at the end of verse 5, uh, this was to worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Or at the end of the paragraph in verse 7, uh, this was the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Or if you look at the end of the command in the fiery furnace, this is the end of verse 12. Uh, These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve the gods you worship or the golden image which you have set up. Now, if you're a, a Jew and you're, you're reading this, you're thinking, well, why would I worship that image? It's a false image. It's not the reality of worship. Why would I worship it? It's a, it's a set up. It's not real. Similarly, Daniel chapter 11 tells us that all these kings and all, their, and all their warring and raging and ruling, they're not real kings. They're set up kings. They're, they're, they're fakes, if you like. They stand in the place of the one true king, but they aren't the one true king, so you don't have to worship them. You don't have to bow down to them. You don't have to fear them as sovereign because they're not sovereign. And for the people of God, that's, that's fantastic news because often these kings hate God and hate his people. And we don't have to fear them because they're not ultimate. They're not over us. So then what can we uh, conclude today, uh, let's say, standing so far downwind? Well, uh, the one thing I would uh, really commend to you at some point in your life is a historical study of Daniel chapter 11. I'd be more than happy to, to do that with you. The exactness of the prophecy, the, the precise language of the prediction, uh, is, is amazing. The people of God uh, have prophecy down to a T about what happened hundreds of years before it happened. And this gives me confidence like nothing else in the authority and the veracity and the reliability of Scripture. So often people will come to the text of Scripture and say, well, that Bible is unreliable 
or it's, it's got all kinds of inconsistencies or inaccuracies. Uh, and no one wants to deal with the fact that the best critical scholars of Daniel chapter 11 can only conclude it was written after the time. That's the best they can do because of how accurate it is. They can't, they can't find any historical inaccuracies in the text. So that's first, the, the historical precision of the language and of the prophecy. And secondly, let's say a conclusion from the first observation, uh, which is that if it's true that God can predict these things with such exactness, then we must conclude that he is sovereign how he says he's sovereign. Uh, if he can do things like this, predict things hundreds of years in the future, oh, well, then we can conclude that all of history is under his thumb. All of history happens under his guise and under his sovereignty. I wonder if that's comforting to you as you think about what you face in a day-to-day basis, uh, the kinds of temptations you might face with your own sin, or the kinds of opposition you might face in the workforce or against people, all the temptations we have to uh, bow the knee to someone else or to another worldview, or to compromise in some way for the truth of God's word. Uh, and, and here this text stands as a testimony to us to say, God is sovereign, take heart, Christian, because you can stand and you can face it because God is there right behind you, sovereign and in control, and nothing's gonna happen from you apart from his will. And then here, the last observation, and this is drawing back to the text we just read this Sunday in Luke chapter 12. I just want to read this text to you on the basis of all that we've just covered in Daniel chapter 11. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 12. Here's Jesus saying to his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Here Jesus calls us to set our eyes above the world, above what's here on the, on the, on the surface, and to not fear anything that might come against us in this world. Fear not, little flock, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And here Daniel tells us with a powerful testimony from a historical view of just how tight God's providence and protection of his flock is. In all of the opposition against the people of God, all of the warring of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jewish nation is still here today. The Jewish people were not wiped out. They were not exposed. They were not expunged. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes loses, dies, and is overtaken by the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people are still there after all of his efforts. Is God not a providential God who can do whatever he well pleases in the history of the world? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your text. Lord, I thank you for predictive prophecy and the the beauty of the reality that you can know all things and there's nothing before your eyes, uh, nothing that we will face tomorrow or the day after or in our entire lives that will take you by surprise. You are not only powerful over all things, you know all things, you've seen all things. And Lord, what a comfort it is to us to know that everything we face on a daily basis from our perspective uh, living in time uh, is something that you uh, have merely accounted for in your unfolding of history. Uh, Not only that, Lord, but you are a God who sets his affections on his people. And so not only do you know what happens to us, but you actually care for us and what happens to us. And both of those are a comfort to us as we face a world that is opposed to you, that is hostile to you, and in many ways is hostile to us who identify with you. We thank you and we praise you for the fact that you have promised us in your word uh, that you care for your people. And Lord, we thank you that you have proven that uh, in the history of your people, the Jewish nation who uh, stands to this day despite all of the uh, opposition against them. 
We praise your name for all that you have done in history. Amen.